Am I so far? Whee! <laughs> Thank you. So the BJP have been thrown out in Connecticut, and hopefully that will follow in other states and in the general election next year. There's been for a last couple of years an anti-conversion law. If someone was converted to become a Christian or any other religion from Hinduism, if their relatives complained, they would throw the pastor in prison. That is going to be revoked in the next few days as the new parliament meets in Connecticut. So we're going in September, and uh, I'll be there from the 1st of September to 3rd of October. Carol's coming out three weeks in, and we'll be there for nine days, 20th of September to 29th of September. Uh, the site we're going to do it is not Bengaluru, which is where Samson is based, but six hours north, imagine where you get in the UK in six hours driving, at, at Balari. And the reason for that is that is where most of the churches are. Now, when we planned this for the end of 2022, got deferred to early 2023, and then April 2023, and now to September, um, we were talking about maybe 100, 150 leaders coming together for that. We are now planning for more than 400 leaders to be gathering together for that. So this little church plant, this little church plant in Bellari, right, has a 500-seater hall. Okay, so, so um, we're going to be using that hall. We'll be based up there for that time, and I don't know how often we'll be going back down to Bengaluru at the weekends. But actually, I do have a plan from him, which is obviously we're doing four weeks of Bible school for pastors and trainees. That's Monday to Friday, the whole of September, and then we're also going to be seeing the work of the church and the churches amongst the temple prostitutes the Devadashi, widows who have no means of support other than the charity of Christians and help, the poor and, and other groups as well. And on Sundays, uh, uh, Samson and I will be hitting the road for the first few Sundays at least. The last few, I want to be back down in Bangalore because that's where Carol will be. So anyway. uh, We'll be out uh, preaching around newly begun churches and I, if I know him, that will be we're preaching twice there, then twice there, then twice there, and then we have a driver to drive us back because we'll be asleep, but that's the way it is. Anyway, that's all well and good. September is happening. If you would like to help with the airfares, which are not cheap at all, but they've been, we've paid them, they're done. But if you'd like to help with, towards the airfares for that journey, obviously when we're there, we're cared for, we're housed, we're fed and so on, but, uh, but the airfares are, are pretty steep. Um, Again, with Pastor Rana's permission, I'll tell you this. If you write, we saw all the list of things we support. If you write India on an envelope, okay, that will be counted up and help to pay off the, the airfares as well to Caroline. Okay. So um, don't forget to pray for us for this year. Now, before we get to this, let me just mention this. Some of you will remember uh, Seki and Tundi Solodolu yeah. live up in Fennels yeah. with their adult children. Well, just over two weeks ago, their, their daughter, adult daughter, Nancy, died. She passed away. Um, she went to be with the Lord. Uh, she'd been combating cancer for a couple of years. She leaves her husband, Joseph, and two children, 10 and 5. Joseph's parents were, last weekend when we spoke to them, were flying over from Australia to be here for the next few weeks to see all the funeral few and so on. But uh, if you remember... Seki and Tunde and Joseph and the children and pray for them, that would be very helpful Grace is in close touch with the family if you want to know, is there a funeral when's it happening, Grace will be knowing that in the next few days or weeks Okay. shall we pray and then we'll get into the scriptures for this morning Father in heaven 
First of all, we want to thank you that as, as people have been praying in India, the tide has begun to turn and radical, radical Hinduism is being resisted. People are voting for non-sectarian, non-divisive politics. And so we thank you that the Congress Party is one in Karnataka and we pray that the, 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 the House of Parliament in Karnataka will quickly revoke these, these discriminatory laws and give freedom again to the Christians and to other people that they can choose to be what they want to be. They can, don't have to stay in the same religion. Lord Jesus, we pray for the Solidolu family and for Joseph and the children. You'll strengthen them and help them. But we thank you that Nancy was at peace with you and is in your hands. Lord Jesus, please give us the help of your Holy Spirit as we consider Scripture together now and as I preach some headlines really on this last of the divine covenants, the new covenant in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, be our helper. Amen. Amen. This has been a once every two months or so series, so in fact I started preaching this last May. <laughs> We've gone through and looked at these things together. Okay, We've been working through this series of divine covenants which add together to God's covenant of grace. First with Adam and then Noah, then Abraham, then Israel through Moses and also Levi and David. The kingdom promise made to David and then finally the new covenant, Jesus Messiah. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties, generally bound by an oath, but in modern times obviously written down in a legal document. Properties, if you're a house owner, your property probably came with some sort of covenant, like you have to maintain the fences or you have to take care of a little strip of land between you and the pavement or something like that. But in the series of covenants we've been considering, it's God who chooses to make covenant with a chosen partner. He makes promises to them and requires trust and obedience of his partners. His biblical promises are sealed by his oath or promise, and in some cases are even further sealed by blood, the shedding of blood. The clearest examples are God making covenant with Abraham, where God himself walked through a field of blood, to make covenant with Abraham and Yahweh's covenant with Israel, which was completely sealed by blood. All those earlier covenants are fulfilled in Jesus. They're rolled over onto him. He is the second man and last Adam, the seed and heir of Abraham, the true Israel, the son of David, who reigns as king, and a high priest of an order greater than that of the Levites. So that's all I can say in looking back, okay? Let's come to today, to the new covenant. Okay, let me just do flip sideways for a moment, okay? Do you know why Easter moves around in our calendar? Anybody? <laughs> it doesn't stay on the same day of the year, does it? No. It's fixed to the Hebrew calendar and to Passover, that's why. It's fixed to the Hebrew Passover. And Jesus, on the night before, before he was betrayed, ate the Passover meal with his disciples. It's the annual memorial of the night of the exodus from Egyptian slavery. The Israelites obeyed the Lord, put the blood of a lamb or goat on their doorposts and ate the roasted animal indoors that night. And while the angel of death went through Egypt and the firstborn of every household died, the Israelites' homes were passed over. And death did not come into their place because the blood was a sign of sacrifice having been made and their trust and obedience to the Lord. Year after year, the Passover night was then remembered with that same meal on that same date 
in the Hebrew calendar. That's why Easter moves around. Carolyn and I have been guests in a Jewish household for such a Passover or Seder meal. And traditions have probably developed over the centuries since the time of Jesus, let alone the time of Moses. But the one we sat in had a book with readings and prayers, and it took quite a while to go through those things. In fact, I was thinking, when do we get to eat? (laughs) Now, I doubt that the Lord Jesus did that. And I've been drawn to the words of Jesus when he celebrated Passover with his disciples. And so what we're going to look at today is centered right in the words that he said at that meal. First of all, the, the bread. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke and Paul writing to the Corinthians tell us that at the beginning of the meal, when the host or head of the table takes the bread, gives thanks to God. When we say bless the food, we don't bless the food, we bless God for the food. That's what blessing is about, you know, thanksgiving for the food. And then he breaks the food, which is big flat bread, and he shares it around the table. So Jesus did that. He took the bread, he broke it, he thanked his father for it, and then he shared it with them. And he said this, take and eat, this is my body, which is broken or given, different scriptures, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread represented his body, which was to be broken, just as bread is broken, or you at least cut it up with a bread knife, don't you? But you don't sit there eating the whole loaf in one go. It's broken into pieces, so you can handle it and eat it. And it was to become health and sustenance for his people, just as bread is. Jesus has spoken in this way already. In John's Gospel, when he talks about he's the true bread from heaven, he's the bread of God. Three times over he says, I'm the bread of life. In John 6, he even talks about you've got to drink, eat his body and drink his blood. Which is like, what? Anyway, we haven't got time to go there. But Jesus talks about the bread being broken, a picture of his body which is going to be broken in the next hours of daylight. Then the cup. This is combining Matthew, Mark, Luke and 1 Corinthians here. As the meal ended, so this was some time later, he took the last cup of wine to be shared. Some say say there were three cups or five cups of wine. They were passed. They didn't drink five cups altogether. They passed it round and sipped. The last cup of the Passover meal was called the cup of blessing or even the cup of redemption. And again, Jesus takes the cup of wine, gives thanks to the Father for it, and then he says this as he passes it to the disciples to pass one another. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, or another version, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many or for you for the forgiveness of sins. So I'm going to step through some of those words of Jesus with you today. In Luke 20, 22, 20 rather, it says, This is the blood, my blood of the new covenant. When the Lord Jesus used the word new covenant, he's of course drawing on the prophets. Three prophets in particular, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now, those three prophets are the ones who give us the, 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 the forward view, six, seven hundred years before Jesus came, of the new covenant that God was going to make. Isaiah was 700 years before Jesus came and 100 years before Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 586 BC. Jeremiah and Ezekiel came 100 years later and lived through the time of Judah being overthrown by the Babylonians and Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed. And yet those three prophets, the people say, he's going to make a new covenant. 
is going to turn it around. It's not going to be the same as it was. It's going to be different then. And they called it by these names, the eternal or everlasting covenant. All three of them say it's eternal. Paul uses the expression in Hebrews 13, where he says, Now the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good thing to do his will, and so on. But this new covenant is actually the eternal covenant. It's just it's now come into reality. A, a series of scriptures tell us some things that God did before he made the world, before Genesis 1.1. Amongst some of these things, God the Son, who we know now as Jesus, was appointed as sacrifice, lamb, and saviour for humanity that had yet to be created, let alone had sinned and fallen. God chose his children, his elect, and gave them to his son. And God ordained all that would happen in his saving purpose before Jesus came into the world, when he came into the world, and what will happen between his first coming and his second coming at the end of the age, which will bring the children of God together into one family and to their eternal inheritance with their father. So though the new covenant appears at the end of these divine covenants, it's actually the one that's been running all the time but it's now coming to clear focus and deliverance. Now, when we talk like this about the eternity of God, we get baffled, we get boggled, don't we? So we should. So we should. Paul, the end of Romans 11, says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, untraceable his ways. It's like, it's like what? Wow! If God is not big enough to boggle you, you need a bigger God. All right. It's also called in those prophets the covenant of peace. Because in this covenant, God is not just forgiving sins, forgiving sins, forgiving sins. He's dealing with the whole issue, dealing with the whole issue of our rebellion, of our estrangement from him. It settles the matter of our sin, our rebellion. God has made peace with us and for us in this new covenant through the blood of his Son. That's why peace is a strong recurring theme in the New Testament. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, being justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.14 says, He himself, Jesus himself, is our peace. Peace is not a something, it's a someone. It's having him. It's knowing his care. Knowing peace with God, indeed the very peace of God, the peace that exists within God himself, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is one of the great promises of the new covenant. The child of God is promised peace with, from, and in God in all situations, at all times. But it's Jeremiah. I didn't think that one worked. Never mind, that's not a good picture. It's in Jeremiah that in two parallel passages, God's eternal covenant is called the new covenant. Now, Hebrew scripture often repeats something twice over with some variations, and that's for emphasis. Or if you like it, it's so we hear it in stereo. There are two witnesses coming to us that tell it in slightly different ways, but they're to be taken together and understood. 
The new covenant was new for Israel, yes, it's new to us, but it wasn't new for God. It's planned from the beginning. Here's Paul quoting from Jeremiah in Hebrews chapter 8. Now, however, Jesus has received a much more excellent ministry just as the covenant he mediates is better. It's founded on better promises. If that first covenant hadn't been, had been without fault, no place would have been sought for a second. If the first covenant worked and was good enough, we wouldn't have had been another one. But God found fault with the people and said, Behold, the days are coming. And he's quoting Jeremiah now, declares the Lord. When our way will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not live by my covenant. And I disregarded them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and inscribe them on their hearts. Now, I just did that, but actually, minds and hearts in the Bible is synonymous. It's the same thing. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's a core promise of the covenants of God. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, and I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. By speaking of a new covenant, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. In the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all that they had known under the old covenant, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, was all going to be swept away. But the Holy Spirit was speaking to them and through them about a new everlasting covenant of peace that would come and last forever. The kingdom of David was going to be swept away, but a future son of David would come and bring the kingdom of God. All of that is fulfilled in who? Jesus. We live in the fulfillment of these things. Whose covenant is it? You know, it's called the the Adamic covenant, because God made with Adama, the Noahic covenant, because there may be no Abrahamic covenant. So whose is this one? I'll tell you very briefly. It's Jesus. It's his. His name is on it. Jesus was chosen by the Father as his covenant partner. Jesus was made man so that he could be represent man as covenant partner with the Father. And he didn't fail in it. When Jesus came into the world, he didn't come to liberate the Jewish people from the Romans. He was called Jesus for a very specific reason, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is our head. In the same way that Abraham stood as the start of a whole people and David the start of a line of kings, so Jesus is the first, the head. He's the firstborn of a whole new family. The representative of everyone who will receive the new covenant. Jesus is our mediator, we just read in Hebrews. He's our mediator through whom we receive all that is promised for us. We'll get there in a minute. Um, twice in Hebrews, he's called the, the mediator. But here's, here's Paul writing to Timothy. Listen to this, I should have put this on the screen for you. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It's a man who's our mediator, Christ Jesus. 
who gave himself as a ransom for all the testament that was given at just the right time. Oh, there's many ways to God. No, there isn't. There aren't. Sorry, bad English. <laughs> there's only one. There's only one mediator. There's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life. It's Jesus. Amen. The covenant is him. It's embodied in him. So to be included in this new covenant of grace, this eternal covenant of grace and peace, you've got to be where? In Jesus. We receive God's grace in him and through him. We're heirs of God because we're in Christ Jesus. There was an interesting comment on one of the version morning things this week. Christ in us, or Jesus in us, is mentioned a handful of times in the New Testament. But our being in him is mentioned dozens of times in the New Testament. And we think about me, 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 but the me bit's really very small. Most of the scriptures are written to us together. We together, all believers, are in Christ Jesus. Our forgiveness, our acceptance, our identity, our security come to us because we are in him. So to be saved, as we say, to be a child of God, we must come to God in and through Jesus the Son, calling on the name of Jesus, believing and confessing Jesus as Lord. But when we do that, we discover the scale and scope of his covenant, for our place in him and his covenant was actually purposed in God before he made the world. The name that should be set against the covenant is yours or mine or even the church. It's Jesus the Son of God. You know, I've known some people fuss about their address, you know. I've known some people claim to live in Hertfordshire when I know they live in Essex. <laughs> I know a man who got the post office to change his address, so he didn't live in Potter Street, he lived in Church Langley. <laughs> so his, his back door, which looked onto a Church Langley area, that became his front door. Shall I tell you what the best address is in this world? Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That's right. Amen. <laughs> and some hymns have it right. This one does. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, which is feeling, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way. Do you you notice the theme already this morning on this one, folks? When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, his oath, his covenant blood brings us to the next point. This is my blood of the new covenant. I said at the beginning, divine covenants were sealed by God's oath and promise, but the most significant ones were also sealed by blood. Now, back in Exodus 24, when the covenant with Israel was made, it was sealed with the blood of sacrificed animals that were sprinkled on the book of the covenant, the law, but then also on the people. This is a pretty gruesome thought, really. Ding, 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 ding. There you are. That is where the phrase, the blood of the covenant, comes from. When Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, his disciples are going, what? What was done there at Sinai, are you going to do to us? And it's your blood? 
They'd been horrified. It was shocking. Jesus was saying that the new covenant overwhelms and replaces the old, but it's not going to be sealed by some animal being sacrificed. He's going to die himself to seal this covenant. Paul uses the phrase, his own blood, three times in Scripture, two of them in Hebrews. This one is from Acts 20, where he speaks to the Ephesian elders. Keep watch over yourselves and the entire flock of God, flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now I thought, is that right? I checked it in the Greek. That's what it says. His own blood. Now he doesn't mention Jesus in that sentence. So what he's saying is it was God's own blood. God in Christ bled for us. Laid down his life for us. In God, Jesus, God became man, made peace with us and for us by his own death, his own blood. All the sacrifices before were only little pointers towards that day at the cross. Now people sometimes say a lot of things about the blood of Jesus and I think some of them are pretty weird. And what they say and some of the songs and hymns we've, we've sung over the years go a long way beyond, beyond what scripture actually says on this subject. Some songs and some preaching contains too much poetic imagination. And I wanted to do, find a picture to put up. Do you know what? Most of them look like horror story movies, things. They're full of gore. My friends, let's not go beyond the scripture when we talk and think about the blood of Jesus. All right? I could say a lot more about that, but anyway. Jesus, at the meal, coming back to the meal, offered them a cup of wine as a symbol of his blood and his death. But he had to drink the real cup of suffering and death. He went from the Passover meal when he said those words and offered that cup to his disciples to Gethsemane where he prayed three times over, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. What cup was that? The suffering, the death, and being the bearer of the sins of the whole world. Horrifying. So horrifying that Jesus was in agony and sweat drops of blood. So he bled before a human blow was struck against him. When he prayed three times over, it was settled, and then they came and arrested him. He was then taken from courtroom to courtroom, so to speak. He was repeatedly beaten with fists and rods, particularly to his face and head. He was scourged, flesh ripped from his back. He was crowned with thorns. Finally, he was crucified. And when he had died, a spear was thrust into his body and blood and water ran out. That was the blood. But before he died, he shouted aloud. Now, crucified men don't shout, but he did. It is finished. The cup had been drained. The cup of suffering, the cup of death, the cup of the wrath of God against us. His work at the cross was finished. No more bleeding, suffering, dying. Jesus paid the full price for us there that day. At that moment, one of the things that happened, and I could talk about all of them, was that the veil of the temple, which was meters high and thick, was torn from the top to the bottom. And it showed that there was nothing in there. 
No Ark of the Covenant, no presence of God, no shining Shekinah glory. It was empty. The Old Covenant had been going for a long time. That is to say, departing for a long time. The giving of the blood of Christ and the work that it accomplished was finished that day at Golgotha. But the power of what he did for us endures forever. Amen. Every time we take communion, which we're not doing today, we handle these emblems again, bread and wine or grape juice, emblems of his body and his blood, and we remember and we worship and we give thanks to him. So what has changed? What has gone? The old has passed, the new has come. The old covenant is no longer operative. The rituals and regulations given through Moses are no longer in force. In the years between the Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus probably died and rose again in AD 30, and the destruction of the temple was in AD 70, Paul wrote this. We read it earlier. By the speaking of the new covenant... He's made the first one, what? Obsolete. Obsolete. You know what that is? When your car stops working, it's obsolete. It goes to the scrapyard. Yeah? It's a non-car. It's a dead car. You know, like the old parrot routine. Okay, if you're you're as old as me. He's made the first obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. And it did. The whole, what we call the cultists, all the practice of, of, of temple Judaism was put away. There is not an old covenant still operating alongside or outside Jesus' Messiah. There are not two peoples of God, one under Moses and law and another under Messiah and grace and gospel. Humanity is divided into two peoples, but do you know what they are? Those in Christ and those who are not. The shadows of the old covenant have become reality. What seemed to be impressive and had weight or glory, in Hebrew that's the same word, are merely a shadow of what is fulfilled in Jesus. He is better. He is greater. The new covenant is better and greater than the old. I've heard preachers say, oh, those old times, oh, the glory, oh, the way they dressed, oh, it wasn't it wonderful. It's, oh, shut up. <laughs> Go and read Hebrews for crying out loud. He is our sacrifice, our Ark of the Covenant. He is our mercy seat. He's our propitiation. He's our high priest. He's our true and eternal king. And we read and interpret the Old Testament scriptures through Jesus because he himself said, they point to me. They're about me. What a claim. Go and read them. They're all about me. Jesus, that is not. What has not changed? What remains? God has not changed. Pastor Rana did a series, I think, he, I don't think he's got through it now, on going back to Exodus and looking at God revealing himself and speaking about himself. He's, he's what? He's gracious. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He keeps covenant faithfulness and love. God hasn't changed. He's always been the same and always will be. He doesn't need to change. There wasn't an old covenant God and a nice new one. No. God's righteousness has not changed. What is right to God? What is pleasing to God? What he regards as being worthwhile and good and wholesome? And therefore, what is wrong? What is not good? What is unwholesome? What is displeasing to him? Has not changed. See, we're not under law. We're not under the old covenant. 
But listen to me. Within the precepts, the letters and so on of the law, are the principles of God's law. What runs through them? His values. What the Bible calls his righteousness. And that has not changed. In other words, still today, what God calls out as moral and immoral, he calls just and unjust, what he defines as being honouring to him and what is not honouring to him. And even if you like, we'll add this too, what is good for us or not good for us is defined by the, the principles that he lays out for us. God's law defines righteousness and therefore also defines and measures sin. You read that in Romans. Whatever falls short of honouring God. Those values seen in God's law, yet not, we're not follow, picking through them, following the letters of the law. The principles of morality and goodness and soundness and righteousness have not changed. In fact, as I've said before, the moral values of the Old Testament law are almost all repeated in New Testament scripture. They haven't changed. Grace and mercy haven't changed. He who has always been loving, merciful, gracious and long-suffering to his saints continues to be so in Jesus. Well, what is new? Let's look at a few key New Testament promises. First of all this, what's new? A new heart, spirit, mind. Three times in Ezekiel, you get promises like this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Notice there again, Hebrew repetition. Heart of heart and spirit are really the same thing. You know, we like to kind of say, this is my heart, this is my mind, and this is my, you know. No, 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 you're just one thing. When you become a Christian, God remakes you. It's not plastic surgery to improve your looks, though. In fact, God isn't impressed with, you know, dressing things up and making them look better than they are. He's he's invested himself into making radical change deep within us. Jesus called it being born of God. It's a radical change. We're renewed at the core of our being. We're given a new heart, a new mind. We'll see in a moment. Therefore, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. You've been changed. Right? Yeah. Now you wish you got, you got new teeth and whatever else, but that's not important. But on the inside, God has made you a new person. And it's a heart of stone, not a heart of stone, it's a heart of flesh. It, it, it isn't, oh, I don't know who God is, I don't know what he's doing. It's, oh, God's, God, God's my father. It feels him, it knows him. Secondly, he writes his law on that new heart, mind, or spirit. I will put my law, this is Paul quoting Jeremiah, I will put my laws in their minds and inscribe them on their hearts. Under the old covenant, the law was written on stone tablets which were displayed in public so people could read the ten words, the ten commandments. But the original first set which Moses threw down and broke when the people were already rebelling against God, was stored in the Ark of the Covenant. The broken law was stored in the Ark of the Covenant. Whether it's a a set that you can read or a broken set in a box, we do not live by the law written on stones or even written on a plaque on the wall. 
We live by the God's law being written in our hearts. One of the marks of a Christian is they keep his commandments, but they're not picking down a list. It's the values, it's the, it's the righteousness, it's, it's knowing what is right and wrong. Having a conscience that's tuned in to what pleases God and doesn't please God. What is honouring to him and what isn't honouring to him. It's being written in our hearts. Now, sometimes that happens as a process. It doesn't happen all in one go. I remember people come to me and say, do you think it's okay for a Christian to do this or that? And, you know, when I got a bit older and a little bit, little bit wiser and all together... Instead of giving them a biblical answer, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, I say, well, hang on, what do you think? Well, it doesn't seem right to me. I say, that's as good an answer as you need. Because something's been written in their heart about it. They're beginning, they can sense the wrongness or the rightness about something. God, here's the promise, folks. If you're a new covenant believer, God writes his ways in your heart. He instructs your mind. And therefore we keep his commandments. And Jesus talks four times over in John's Gospel about, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now that's not, well, if you love me. It's, no, as a consequence of your loving me, my commandments will be written in your heart. You'll find yourself keeping them. We could explore that more in Romans as well, but we haven't got time. Knowing God is available to all. All right? You know, in the Old Testament, only some people got close to God. The priests, some kings, and so on. Most people had to just live secondhand on what the prophet told them or whatever else, you know. People today seem very easily settling for that kind of way of life. Oh, I don't need to know God. He'll do it for me. You know, just because we call someone a pastor instead of a priest, we still tend to think like that, some of us. We want someone else to be the go-to God man and to bring it back. Here's the promise. Quoting from Isaiah, Hebrews 10. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, No, Lord, because, say this with me, they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Of course we still need teachers. They're one of Christ's continuing gifts through church. But God's knowing God is not reserved for some. It's for every believer, every child of God, to know Jesus and their Father and the Holy Spirit. We can all draw near to him. We can all grow in the knowledge of God. I like it says, from the least of them to the greatest. Our whole society, our whole way of thinking is top down. They're the important people and we aren't. Jesus, Jesus looks at that, God looks at that and says, you're the important people and they aren't. God isn't impressed by fame or wealth or a, or a, or a titled gentry thing, is he? Is he? No. No, he doesn't care who won Eurovision <laughs> or didn't. God always works from the least to the greatest. Those who think there's something special are last in his order of things. Everybody from the least to the greatest can know the Lord. Increasingly, in different measures, as we grow in grace. But that's the promise to us. Do not have the second-hand faith, my friends. Don't be relying on someone else to be the, the go-to for God. I'll send you to God to get something for me. No, you can come to him yourself through Jesus. 
and find your help directly from Him. Then the Holy Spirit is given to all. Joel chapter 3, Paul, uh, Paul Peter preaches it on, in, in Acts 2. This is a quotation of the Old Covenant. In the last days, which means the days of Messiah, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my men servants and maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. This is not the big prophet Elijah or or Elisha, you know, the big guys. The people who get to serve in the house will be the people prophesying. Children, young sons and daughters of prophecy. And then old men, I'm glad to get included somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Old men will dream dreams too. Is that everybody or is that everybody? Is that enough categories to include us all? Male and female, old and young. Not the the bosses, the top people, the serving people. The Holy Spirit is for everyone. The Holy Spirit... Since Jesus came into the church, receiving the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, is the hallmark of the new covenant. Jesus is the giver of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I've done this teaching through the Greek New Testament. The word spiritual in the New Testament almost always refers to the Holy Spirit. But it never refers to our spirit. See, we've got spirit. I'm a, people, you talk to people about being a Christian. They say, oh, I'm a spiritual person. Now, because I understand what the Bible says, I want to say, no, you're not. No, you're not. You, you, might, have, you might be religious and mystical and something, but biblically, the definition of spiritual is that you have the Holy Spirit in you. That's the definition of spiritual. You're led by the Spirit of Christ. You're a child of God led by the Spirit. So summary, this new covenant. Membership is by birth through the Spirit, not by natural descent. That's why Christian parents need to pray for their kids. Our kids are not automatically Christians. Covenant doesn't work like that. I know Christians, some argue that it does, but I don't believe it does. You become a believer, you become a child of God through new birth, through having it be given a new heart and so on. The sign of this covenant is baptism, not circumcision. In fact, it's our hearts, male and female, that are circumcised by the cutting off of sin. We're not bound to the regulations and rituals of the Testament law. Whether it's circumcision, Saturday Sabbath, or food laws, they are all obsolete. All gone. Paul thunders that in Galatians, by the way. God's moral law still stands and he writes his law in our hearts, but we are not under the regulations of the old covenant. Then lastly, this, Jesus went to, the last bit of what Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, for the forgiveness of sins. This new yet eternal covenant peace made by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, he died on the cross and was entombed in the, you know, Joseph's tomb before the day of Passover ended at sundown. Hebrew days go from sundown to sundown. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. His blood was poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. God doesn't forgive sins on the basis, oh, well, never mind. He forgives on the basis Christ died for that. He forgives you because Christ died for you. It's not just 
whenever he feels like being merciful, he'll be merciful. He's merciful because Christ has borne his God's wrath for you. He's taken the penalty. We are not earning our way to God. We're not climbing a ladder of effort and attainment. God saves us, forgives us, and accepts us simply because his son went to the cross in our place and bled and died in our stead. There, is, there can be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he took the penalty for our sin at the cross and rose again to give us new life in him. And finally, what does, God, what does the Lord require from us in his new covenant? Because he required of Jesus obedience to the point of death to make the covenant and Jesus, his covenant partner, did it. Now we are in Jesus. and So what do we get to do? What does he want? Simply this. Our faith, which means trust in Jesus and our obedience towards Jesus. I used to sing it when I went to Sunday school as a little lad. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. It really is that simple. Trust him, obey him. Trust him and as Mary said about the vats of water that turn into wine, do whatever he says. Paul calls it the obedience of faith, loving Jesus and keeping his words. Living by the Spirit with a renewed heart, mind and conscience that looks to and listens to the Lord. Have you entered his covenant of grace? How will you know? Well, you will have come to repentance and faith in Jesus. You will be experiencing the forgiveness and reconciliation and peace that Jesus paid for at the cross with his own blood. You will have the beginning of and the growing of a living relationship with him. You will know him but also be getting to know him better over time. You will be being led by the Spirit. Your conscience will be alert to what is good and right and what is not. These are signs that you've become a Christian. The new covenant is a living thing, a relationship between God and us. Again, Hebrews calls it the new and living way. It's to live by faith in the Most High, in and through Jesus, by the help of the Holy Spirit. Trust Jesus. Believe he died in your place and that he rose again to bring you a new life in himself. Confess that Jesus is Lord, meaning he's king, he's God. But particularly your king, your master, your God. In baptism in water, we act out this life transformation. We're buried with him to our old life and raised with him to new life. But following Jesus is not a solitary pursuit. We need to gather with other believers and continue to learn together with them how to work this new life out. Because there are challenges, there are crises. We're, we're, we're in conflict with the values of this world all the time, under pressure to conform to ways which are not pleasing to God. So we need each other. We need teaching. We need prayer. We need fellowship. So before a key promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. So what do you believe? Who do you trust? Who are you going to obey? Let your answer be Jesus. 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 Shall we pray? Jesus, my master. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You 
You went to the cross. It wasn't an easy thing. You prayed over, it seems to me, an hour or two. Intensely, agonizingly. To settle, to agree, to receive the full cup of sin and suffering and death and to bear it away at the cross. To drain the cup empty. So what you offer us now is a cup of life, a cup of blessing, a cup of redemption. I pray that the reality of these things will be formed in our hearts. We are truly gospel people who understand we're not trying to make our way to heaven. (laughs) We're being carried there by the grace of God in Jesus. You're the forgiver of our sins. You're the giver of the Holy Spirit. You're the, the, the fixer of our souls. Jesus, we worship you now today. I pray now for your truth to bear fruit in our hearts, in our practical lives, for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Thanks, Paul.